it's Imogen from SquarePeg. If you were to ask VCs if they prefer thinking about the future or the past, I'd wager that almost all of them would say the future. The industry is built upon potential. And meeting so many founders of so many cutting-edge companies, you get this sense that you're seeing the future come alive in front of your very eyes. But my favorite part is the opposite. I love thinking about the past and how even the most unlikely events have conspired to make today possible. On today's episode, we meet two founders whose lives, it seems to me, were designed to provide them with the experience necessary to build the company they are building today. And it's one that's vital for the future because it's tackling one of the world's greatest problems, climate change. I'm talking about Amber Electric, a renewable energy company founded by Chris Thompson and Dan Adams based in Melbourne, Australia. I get to listen to founding stories often and I can say quite genuinely, theirs is one of my favorite. Stay with us. Meet Dan. So when I was 18, I was lucky enough to get to go surfing over in Samoa. And while I was there, I, I managed to cut myself on the coral reef. And I ended up getting a golden staph blood infection from the reef cut. And I was taken to a local hospital where there was 37 doctors, but 30 of them were on strike because of the conditions in the hospital. And I was told that I my temperature was 40, I think it was 41 degrees. We think you've got a golden staph blood infection. If you're going to survive, you need to get antibiotics and we don't have any on the island. And it was a pretty confronting experience for an 18-year-old. Fortunately, I had travel insurance. My family rallied around. They organized to fly me off the island to a first world hospital. And I eventually, after two weeks on an antibiotic drip, eventually recovered but had this feeling of, you know, why do I have the right to live? You know, if I'd been a local person, I wouldn't be here. Why is my life worth any more than someone else's just because of where I grew up? Is this something I can do about, about this? And so Dan did what all of us do when we have a question and we don't know the answer. He Googled it. And in doing so, he came across the Make Poverty History campaign over in the UK and thought, wouldn't it be amazing if I could do something like that in Australia? and get our government to play a more effective role in addressing extreme poverty in the region. And so I decided in that hospital bed that I was going to dedicate a year of my life to doing something about this and see what might happen. And so I came back to Australia. I got together a bunch of volunteers through an organisation called the Oak Tree Foundation, and I called every band, every media partner, every sponsor I could think of in the country for about six months. And the original plan was to have it at sort of Fed Square, one sort of vaguely high-profile band, a 1,000 people, and encourage the government to increase our aid budget. And after six months, I had nothing. No bands, no media partners, no sponsors, a team of volunteers that was feeling pretty disheartened about this uh, vision. I decided to keep, keep going for a bit longer, and I eventually um, called up a woman by the name of Rebecca Campbell, who used to uh, manage Evermore, and I called her up and I said, look, I'm organising this, this concert. And she said, look, I know who you are. Everyone in the music industry is talking about this kid that just keeps calling relentlessly about this concert. I admire your persistence and uh, I'd love to meet with you. And I went up and met with her and she, halfway through the conversation she said, look, we're on board. And that was really the turning point. And suddenly all of the bands that Dan had been calling for six months started calling him back. 
And with the bands locked in, the newspapers and media partners that 19-year-old Dan and his plucky group of volunteers had been begging to partner with were cooperating. And seemingly overnight, this project that they have been pushing uphill for six months started rolling away under its own momentum. I thought, you know, if I could have any band in the world at this event, who would that be? And I was lying in the bed at like two in the morning and I thought um, it'd probably be U2 or Pearl Jam. And so I Googled their management contact details, called them up, cold call. I think it was middle of the night, Australia time. I told them, I gave them the pitch over the phone. And they said, you know, righto, mate, um, send us through a proposal and we'll, we'll, you know, we'll have a look at it. And I didn't really expect anything to come of that. And then about a month before the concert, I got this call from Pearl Jam's manager and she said, Bono and, and Eddie Vedder have been speaking about your concert and they would both like to come and perform. Is there still space on the bill? <laughs> and I thought, yeah, I think, there's, uh, I think there's still space. Yeah, and so suddenly this thing just got taken to a whole new level. Over 100,000 people applied for 15,000 tickets. It was so popular that they were forced to set up satellite sites for tens of thousands more people to watch the concert live streamed on radio and TV across Australia. Dan even remembers the concert making the front page of the national newspapers the next day. But that's not the part that really stays with Dan. We ended up having 50,000 young Australians sign up to be part of the campaign to end extreme poverty. Kevin Rudd was at the event and the following year pledged to increase our aid budget to 0.5% of our gross national income which represented additional billions of dollars a year of aid funding and cited the Make Property History campaign as one of the reasons for that decision. Now, whether or not it was, I'll I'll never know, but if we made even a very small contribution to that decision, it was a year pretty well spent. This is a very unusual experience for a teenager. And I suggested to Dan that it must have been extraordinary at that age to wield such influence. And I asked how he thought that shaped him. I think one of those things is just that that perspective that it gave me, that I think I started that year with an idea and then I remember um, sitting at the event, seeing that whole thing coming to life and thousands of people turning up, realising that if you have a big idea and are really passionate about it and put your heart and soul into it, it's amazing what can happen. And I think, as you, as you mentioned, you know, that was quite a, I think, a transformative experience to have as a 19-year-old. And I think it, it has shaped my life until this point, And I think it will continue to shape it for many years to come. At this point, both Dan and Chris went to uni, got their degrees, and got jobs at the Boston Consulting Group in Melbourne, jumping into consulting. And it was here that they met on their first day, kind of. It was my second day because the first day was Dan's birthday, so he he took it off. <laughs> that is not what actually happened, but I did have something <laughs> important on the first day, and so I came a day, a day late. It also it was it or was it on your birthday? <laughs> it may have been my birthday, but that was not the reason. <laughs> Meet Chris. Yeah, so I mean, my impressions of Dan were very much driven by the fact that he he just baller had not come on the first day and, and then and then proceeded to just ask everyone at, at all times a million questions um, about whatever subject was spoken about but was obviously very bright and, and probably you know 
BCG had a lot of really talented people. Very few were quite as unusual as Dan Adams. Dan and I didn't actually work together directly on any BCG projects, but actually the area where we, we started to bond was in surfing. Dan would spend all his time at work telling us stories about the crazy things he was doing the weekends. And so eventually yeah, I got encouraged to try and come along and, and we started going surfing pretty regularly on the, on the weekends and, and started to, to have very long conversations about very esoteric topics. Dan remembers something mostly similar. Yeah, my, my recollection of that time was I had a car and Chris didn't have a car. So I think the, the main motivation to begin with was that Chris wanted a lift to the surf. But then we used to spend, you know, those one and a half, two hours driving to the surf and then, and then back again, having long, deep conversations about physics, economics, whole range of topics. And I, I think I quickly discovered that Chris was probably the smartest person that I had ever met. And I think when you meet people like that, it's a you know pretty fortunate opportunity to to learn as much as possible, and I have a I like to understand things from first principles. And when I meet someone that knows far more than I do on almost every topic, it was like a treasure trove of opportunity to learn. So I really enjoyed those those trips to the surf, and yeah, I think it was uh, worth giving him a lift. Away from the surf at work, both Dan and Chris really enjoyed the intellectual rigor of consulting getting to work with execs, and pull apart strategy. In their trips to the surf, both Dan and Chris had already started talking about renewables as the future of the energy market, but no business idea was fully formed, and they were both pretty happy in their jobs as professional learners and strategists. I would say that in some way the most useful area of consulting, it was something that was really useful to help benchmark. Benchmark what good looked like, benchmark what can be done, benchmark you know, what are good people like and people that are competent in their roles. And both, you know, a place like Boston Consulting Group, you're working with a lot of incredibly smart people across a, a wide range of areas, but you're also coming into a, like lots more companies than you would in, in most professions and really getting exposure to all these different ways of working, all these different parts of the way the business and, and the non-business parts of the world work and fit together. And I think that was a deeply useful experience for me. My experience of consulting was really that I'd been running campaigns on sort of social environmental issues and came to the conclusion that I felt like I could have a bigger impact in the world if I could build a business that would make the world better, but would also be profitable and then would be infinitely scalable and I wouldn't be limited by continuing to need to go out and raise money for the next nonprofit project. And so I went to consulting with the view of, I think I need to learn about this thing called business so I can one day start my own. And I, I was really fortunate in that I've been passionate about the transition to renewable energy for a long time and managed to spend the vast majority of my time at BCG working with electricity retailers, networks on solar, battery storage, smart grid type topics. And so I just had this great opportunity to learn about all the things that I was interested in and see all the opportunities there that you know ultimately have evolved into to what is Amber today. Until one day, Chris got a call. One day, kind of a recruiter reached out out of the blue and was like, I have this role in Iran. Is this something you're interested in? And it was kind of, you know, one thing led to another and eventually got to the point where I was sort of like, this is too crazy not to do. And so, you know, <laughs> kind of, I think the time between when they reached out and when I was on a plane heading to Iran was like two weeks time. The opportunity was to build the Amazon of Iran, a six-month startup called Bamalo helping local merchants and Iranians engage in e-commerce for the first time. It was 2015, 
and the timing couldn't have been more ideal or interesting. Iran was in a transitional phase. A fatwa issued against 3G internet was lifted earlier that same year. The negotiations for what became the Obama-Iran nuclear deal began just days before Chris quit his job at BCG. The result was ultimately eased sanctions in Iran against banking, energy, and international trade, all necessary for building an e-commerce business. And it was against this backdrop that 26-year-old Chris landed. I hit the ground and, and joined the company probably about six months after it had been founded and started just trying to ha- help handle the growth there um, as we were growing extremely rapidly and, and the team and the organization was growing extremely rapidly because we were really doing you know, all these sort of fundamental e-commerce things, both from having a website and managing a marketplace of different vendors, but also handling the logistics and, and doing it all in a sort of in a market that, that really didn't have any of these sort of preconditions. So you weren't building on top of anything else. Everything was being done you know, from the beginning. We were, we were the company that introduced programmatic marketing into a rod. And, and like, you know, literally before that, we were sort of renting space on people's websites. So it was really like going back to sort of the 90s internet, first sort of internet boom. And so, yeah, ended up becoming one of the two managing directors there and basically in charge of the commercial and product and tech sides of the business as well as sort of helping out across everything. So build up a commercial team to be able to handle several thousand vendors selling everything from your know, books and movies through to even larger your items, clothing, electronics. Chris found that at the beginning, his Australianisms, the casual use of language and the informal approach to conversation often tripped him up. At the extreme end of this spectrum, He told me the story about when his casual use of the F word resulted in mayhem because the product team believed that Chris had explicitly asked them to tell the marketing team to F off. And then at the other end of the spectrum were stories that really tickled me. Here's one. It was certainly like trial by fire. I think when I took over the managing director role, it was pretty instantly like 100 people. And I think at one point it was like 40 direct reports. So it was very much a, like, how do you actually start to organize this and, and sort of manage the chaos and doing it all in a culture where you know, I was coming in and, and was the outsider and didn't speak Farsi when I, when I landed. And so I spent a lot of time trying to teach other people to manage while trying to learn to manage myself at the same time, which God knows how many mistakes and you know, bad decisions I made because certainly the case that the small misalignments you would create or the small things you would get wrong or the small impressions you would give would get magnified through the organization at a very high rate. I once found a, a group of about five people huddled in a room, sort of knocking on the office door of the room that I was in, very nervously coming in. And, and what had happened was I'd said to one of them that we should just have a, a catch up on it, this Arvo, and found that basically half the office had been involved in trying to work out what Arvo meant and what time Arvo was. And you know, did you hear the Iranian culture where they wouldn't just sort of come and ask? They'd all sort of nervously gathered around after about an hour of trying to work out what time that was <laughs> to then, and very apologetically come and knock on the door and be <laughs> ask me what time Avo meant. For non-Australians, Avo means afternoon. It's not a specific time. But it was experiences like this that really hammered home the importance of language. But he was also learning lots about how to make things happen. During his two years at Bamalow, one story that stands out is his decision and process to bring the engineering team in-house. We originally had the tech stack run by a team of engineers in, in Portugal. So there's about 500 people 
managing a tech stack for, for businesses, for us as, as well as around the world. And we were around, and so technically we didn't exist and we were kind of off the records and, and off the books and everything. And so trying to actually get anything done was, was incredibly hard. And so we realized we had to take over the technology stack and, and build it out ourselves. And so we built out an engineering team and spent probably six to nine months trying to do knowledge transfers and, and so on. But it was something that was only going to be painful in the short term because the site was working, that you know, things were, were happening, but they were happening slowly and we weren't going to be able to actually build it out. And so it got to the point where the only way, I think, to actually make it happen on both sides was it put a hard date on there and, and basically you know, a contractual reason why it had to actually stop by a certain point in time, which then forced all the trade-offs that had to be made and all the decisions that had to be made. And so engineering up organizations that then you know, do things that you don't want to do, but you make them that you have to do, I think is, is something I learned from that. So at this point, it's now 2017. I'm going to stitch Chris and Dan's storylines back together. Chris has completed two years at BCG and then two years at Bamalo and headed to the Americas for a break. Dan has finished four years at BCG, which included a year's secondment to Hawaii, working with a major electricity retailer to lay cables and set up renewable projects. They meet up in South America on a beach in Ecuador, naturally. And just as they had in the car on the way to the surf, they start talking again about the biggest issues in the world and kept coming back to the problem of the energy market. I've been passionate about this transition to 100% renewable energy for a long time and have been thinking about, you know, the challenge used to be 10 years ago that renewable energy was the most expensive form of power. But now renewables are actually the cheapest form of energy. The challenge is it's not always windy and it's not always sunny. And one, one solution to that is large-scale batteries to charge up when there's excess wind and solar and discharge when people need power. But that's quite an expensive solution to the problem. It is definitely part of the solution, but it's an expensive part. The much cheaper solution is helping people use that renewable power when it's available. And there's this big opportunity to do that now with household batteries coming to people's homes, electric vehicles coming to people's homes, and other smart devices to get those devices to automatically use that cheap renewable power when it's available. You know, you've got these two big trends, renewables coming down, smart devices coming to people's homes, and this opportunity to do something for people which would save them money and build demand for renewable energy at the same time. And I think when you find those win-wins, it's something pretty special. And so I'd spent 10 months in, in South America and had written about 40 business plans about how to solve that problem, how to build the business model for that future. And then Chris came down and um, caught up with me a couple of times in, and we were sitting on the beach in Ecuador and I was explaining to him a bunch of these, these ideas and Chris ripped them all apart, pointed out all the holes in them as he, as he usually does and then said, I've got an even simpler way to achieve this goal. Why don't we just give customers direct access to the real-time wholesale electricity price as it varies every half an hour? So other retailers buy power in this wholesale market. When there's lots of renewables in the grid, that wholesale price is really cheap, like in the middle of the day, often late at night when there's lots of wind power. And then when everyone's using power at 8 p.m., it's more expensive because it's coming from expensive gas. Why don't we just, rather than charging people a fixed price for energy, which is the traditional model, which means that people can't access that cheaper price of renewables um, when they're available. Let's just give people direct access to that real-time wholesale electricity price. And then if they can shift some of the usage to when the wind is blowing and the sun is shining, they'll directly benefit from using power at those, at those cheaper times. That was really the moment the penny dropped, the, the simplicity of that model of just giving people the price signal to be able to respond to the availability of renewables was really the, the piece that makes every, everything else flows from. 
because that then means that people can manually shift their usage to when renewables are generating, but it also means that we can do that in an automated way by controlling those smart devices and getting and customers directly get the benefit from that. This is a defining moment in their lives and the lives of their business. But the actual mechanics of the energy market are generally unfamiliar to most people. So let's just quickly recap what they'd realized. Traditional retailers sell electricity at a flat price. On your bill, you'll likely see a flat dollar per kilowatt hour. But all retailers buy electricity at the wholesale price, which changes every 30 minutes based on supply and demand. And it is increasingly driven by the availability of renewables. It's cheaper when the sun is shining and the wind is blowing, and it's more expensive when coal and gas are burning. Retailers turn changing wholesale prices into a flat price through hedging strategies. What Chris and Dan realized is that by giving customers access to the actual wholesale price, allowing them to benefit from using cheaper renewable power, such as by charging their electric vehicle when prices are super low, they could not only drive demand for renewables, but they could also save customers a heap of money. This is the core of Amber Electric. They charge a flat $10 monthly fee and give customers access to wholesale electricity rates. But there was a problem. Dan had just accepted a role at Tesla, leading the design and execution of the world's largest virtual power plant. And he was actually kind of pumped to be heading to Tesla. In some ways, it felt like Dan's natural home. The sense of purpose there is something that I think a lot of people at Tesla went there because they really believe in, in, in their mission. And I think it's very close to my personal mission. Having a culture built around people spending their time on something they believe in was really powerful. And also the level of ambition, I think, is just exciting to be in a place like that. But lucky for Dan, his surfing buddy was ready to step in. Dan is an incredibly compelling individual who has an unbelievable way of making the rest of the world fit his vision to the extent that he managed to get me to start the company and run it for a year while he was off gallivanting at Tesla and, and doing great work there before he could actually come back and to do the fun part and join. I'm very grateful for that because I promised myself that I would start a business that would help drive the transition towards renewables. I think I'd started thinking about it when I was about 15 and I promised myself that I'd do it before I turned 30. And when I got back from South America, I was 30. There was a few things going on in my, in my life that I didn't feel like I was quite ready to do it. And Chris was like, I think this idea has really got legs. I want to make it happen. Um, and he actually got it started while I was at Tesla in that year and really built the company from scratch, raised the first pre-seed round, uh, got us the first 100 customers. And I'm really grateful for that because I like to think that I would have quit Tesla and come and started it myself from scratch. But I think the temptation to stay at a role that I was loving doing some really interesting things might have been too great if I hadn't seen you know, my good friend living the dream that I'd been talking about for, for many years. Before we jump into Amber, it's important for us to discuss the why. When I think of a mission-driven company, Amber is one of the first that springs to mind, and it's easy to understand why. Climate change is one of the biggest challenges of our time, and it's going to affect the way of life of all people in all countries around the world. I think climate change will exacerbate the inequality that already exists in the world, but also create a new form of inequality of sort of intergenerational inequality. And it's very hard to see a world that I'd want to live in if we don't do something significant to address the challenge that we're facing. 
But I also think it's a really exciting opportunity. There was the industrial revolution that has got us to where we are today. And now that we have this, like we're at this moment in history where we can redefine that and create this new world that we, that we want to live in that can continue to enable prosperity without the pollution and the damage to the environment so that we can build a sustainable economy. Like I think that is just such an exciting thing to be a part of and to, I feel that I was born at a time that I get to be a part of that. I mean, on some levels we're doing well and there are other levels we're doing poorly. Australia is the, is the world leader in, in rooftop solar. You know, 20% of, of households now have solar panels on, on their roof, which is pretty remarkable. And equally, I think we will be on, on batteries. On things like electric vehicles, we're behind the world. And in terms of having a really clear policy direction, and we're behind many places in the world. But I do think that fortunately, renewables are now fundamentally economic. They are cheaper than coal and, and gas. And so it's really now a business problem rather than a, you know, it, the renewables don't require government subsidies anymore. It's a business problem to solve. The technology exists. It makes economic sense. We just need to build the business models to, to enable it. And that's what we're you know, doing with Amber is building a, a business model for what an electricity retailer of the future looks like in a world powered by renewable energy. And so over the course of that year, Amber launched. It was about this time that I first met Chris and Dan in our office in Sydney. Chris had popped in to meet my colleague Tushar to get his advice on the business and their plans to raise their first round of capital. We actually ended up introducing Chris to their first investors, Black Sheep Capital, before investing ourselves a few months later. But I'm jumping ahead a little. As with all fundraisers, there are always a few moments to stay with founders. This is what Chris and Dan remember. I think Chris knows what I'm going to say. We'd had a whole bunch of investor meetings lined up in the space of a couple of days. So there was like, you know, one hour breaks between pitch meetings. And one of them had run a bit late, but we thought we still had time to get to the, to the next one in time. And then we were in this Uber and the sign above says, this way to the, over the Sydney Harbour Bridge. And I tapped the Uber driver on the trial. I said, I'm, we don't want to go over the Sydney Harbour Bridge. This can't be right. And he's like, no, no, I'm definitely on the right road. And I'm like, but, but look, what about that sign? And he's like, don't worry, it's, everything's under control. I'm like, okay, I'm not from Sydney, I must be wrong. A couple of minutes later, we are starting to go over the Sydney Harbour Bridge, <laughs> away from the city. The meeting is starting in five minutes' time. And now Google Maps tells us that it's going to be like 40 minutes round trip to go over the bridge, back into the city to get back to this meeting. At which point we were like, can you please pull over the car? We got, we got out of the car with our like suitcase on the side of the Sydney Harbour Bridge and ran across the city down, like down, the side, down side streets. And then we got to the place and the, and the lift, we couldn't make the lift work. So then we ran up the stairs. We got to the meeting, I think about 20 minutes late. The whole investment committee was like sitting there waiting for us. And we turned up just like dripping with sweat, completely out of breath. It wasn't our best pitch. <laughs> I think the other one that stands out, so Tusha, Tusha Ledau and the investment in the seed round and, and someone who I worked with at, at BCG and have known and, and trusted for five years. And so over each of these different moments of our journey, he's been someone who I've always reached out to for, for advice and for help and, and to just you know, try and work out what was going on. You know, we we raised the seed seed round and, and 
you know, Square Peg were the top of the list and, and you know, we're keen to to talk to Tusha. And we had this meeting with Tusha and we, we spent probably two and a half hours with him, taking him through it all. And we, we sort of walked out and we're like, that was great. We've really done a great job. They seem really excited. And I think half an hour later, we get this call from Tusha being like, hey guys, I've uh, just been speaking with Tony. He thinks your entire idea is a crock of dung. Could you come back tomorrow <laughs> and uh, talk him through it and, and see if you can convince him that it's right? And so there was a, a series of things going on. I'm flying. I think I flew back to Adelaide and then flew back to Sydney the next day that for, for that one. And Dan's stress calling me that night and trying to dive in for like, what is it Tony will be thinking? And then how will he understand this? And so on. And we came back the next day and spent, I think, sort of three hours or so with, with Tony and Tusha going through on a whiteboard down to the like the level of intricacy in the electricity market that I don't think I've ever covered with anyone else. We, um, we, uh, we literally started where from the like the basic physics of the electricity market and the rotating turbines and the, the frequency of the sine, the sine wave of the AC power right through to the like absolute first principles of the you know, energy market economics and then all the way up to, so why does amber make sense? And I think actually that conversation was probably the best conversation I had with any investor in all those meetings that we had because Tony was really thinking about it from first principles, pulling it all apart and really making us prove that this made sense from a real first principles basis. And I think I really enjoyed that conversation but also respected the questions that, that, that Tony and Tusha were asking. And it really gave me confidence that you know, these were the, the right investors for us. So often, the tech community glorifies founders who've raised lots of money. And sure, in many ways, raising capital is the difference between companies getting off the ground or staying in business or not. But the Amber team have a really refreshing perspective on what it means to raise money for your business. I think if I could say one part of it is that, and I think the dynamic becomes increasingly true, is that I don't feel different having now, having raised you know, several sort of meaningful rounds and so on like the company still feels so much closer to zero in some ways than it does to a completion and i think that probably is the right attitude right like and i think that approach to investment that it is a means to an end that it was a great great milestone but like you know for us it was really been about the things that it lets us do and i think every time that we we think about investment we think about we're not creating value by raising money we're creating value by building a company and with the joy is in the everyday coming in and, and going in with the team and building a great company With the money raised, the early team hired and the product functioning, they started getting customers. I think I was customer number eight. Two years have passed since, and I wanted to know what it has been like now they're building the company they talked of for so long. At the end of the day, the the experience of building Amber is actually pretty similar to what I was expecting, I think, albeit consistently slower, because I always expect to be able to do things in half the time that it actually takes me. Um, But... I think the part that I've been blown away by has just been the quality of the team that we've been able to, to find. Like Dan and I often sit around and, and sort of you know talk about how how that we've managed to work with so many amazing people. And so that's the the part that I, I would never have expected to be able to have recruited such a terrific team and, and have them all sort of follow in the, in this vision. 
But I think the other parts of it that you know, you come into work and you crack in and you're trying to build product and you're trying to solve problems and you're trying to prioritize and you're trying to decide, do I do these parts now? But then that will mean those parts are bad for longer or do I fix that issue now? And, and how do you handle 40% monthly growth and how do you do these ones? Like, those are, I think they're problems that are similar enough across startups and across the startup experience that once you've done it a bit, you know what you're in for. And so each company has its own quirks, but I wouldn't say it's hugely, it's hugely different than what I would have expected. I think the thing that for me has been just the amount of opportunities that there are every day. Like there are people approaching us or um, introductions being made to people doing fascinating things in very aligned areas and super complementary to what we're, what we're doing in Amber with lots of different smart device companies approaching us that want to work with us to control their smart device based on the wholesale price. The range of opportunities I think is greater than I really expected. And then the challenge is actually being trying to prioritize those things and also get a sort of sense of, keep some sort of sense of balance in, you know, in our lives because there is just endless opportunities and there are endless things that we could do that could create huge amounts of, of value. But there's only so many hours in the day and so it's a matter of trying to really prioritize the right things. I think the other thing is just how rapidly things are happening. So if we look back 12 months ago, it was Chris and I and we had a couple of part-time people helping us. And now there's a team of 17. And a year ago, we had just over, maybe it was about 100 customers. We now have 2,500 customers. So just the, the rate of growth and the rate that the team is growing, that our product is improving, that just things are happening is pretty exciting. We're so in it every day, you don't realize until you step out and say, look, look what's happened over the last 12 months. You've probably noticed that Dan and Chris are really quite different people in their approach and style. And unsurprisingly, they had very different answers when I asked them how they manage their weeks. I don't think I'm good enough yet, but prioritizing, I think it's important in life in general has always been important, but I think it's more important now than it's ever been before because it's just so much stuff to do. And just trying to wake up in the morning and work out what is the most valuable use of my time today is actually quite a hard question when you can only do 10% of the things you'd like to do. And so I think I still have a long way to go. I, I sometimes get to the end of the day and think I didn't spend my time on the right thing today. But I, I think that is such an important, important thing. My way seems to be that like once at an arbitrarily defined one, I create a list and I share it with the team of the things that I'm considering my highest big picture project that I want to work on. And then I revisit it at completely arbitrary time periods and sort of say, am I on top of this or am I not? <laughs> and then if I've got a lot of them done, then I create a new one and share it with other people again. But that, that is like, I probably don't spend as much time stressing about the, the details. Like in some ways you just got to get the details done. But then I like over the big picture, are you, are you dealing with the, the big sort of important problems? The one thing they agreed on was that measuring success in the day-to-day is hard. I don't think you can measure yourself by the, like, how many problems you're facing because, like, <laughs> sometimes you just get more problems even if things are going well sort of thing. And so, like, I think, it, are you solving problems and are you solving the right problems and are you getting through them reasonably quickly? feels like the only way you can sort of sensibly benchmark yourself sort of thing because if, you, if you're trying to worry about, like, this is like harder than I thought, or this is like taking longer than I thought or so on, then you're always failing, right? Like if that is, if that's your pension of success, but it's like, 
am I actually solving the problems that have to get solved? Thanks for listening. If you'd like to stay in touch, please subscribe to this podcast. And if you'd like to help, leave us a five-star review. Otherwise, find us in all the regular places.